Barrow's a lawyer you do not want to mess with. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I've got a yawn going. I just hope it doesn't start spreading. All right, well, let's keep moving here. We, uh, it, it's good to see all of you uh, this evening. I, I jokingly say let's keep moving because somebody asked me, how many weeks do we have left? I said three. And then he looked at First Peter and said, are we going to finish? <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, if you have the notes here, we're still working through the one that says three eighteen or three eight to seventeen, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up three eighteen to twenty two. But that also includes. The uh, next section there, 4, 1 to 11. And I will, you know, I'm going to try to blame it on that one week. You remember that one week we had for the, uh, the snow day? I was going to do so much in that one week, and then we didn't have it that day, and now, you know, so that's the, really the reason. Hey, that, that was a pretty good spill right there. <laughs> I will say that there's extra copies over here. If, 
All right, well, let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll jump right back in where we picked, where we left off last time. Father, thank you so much for the joy of serving your son. Thank you that he's given to us freedom in Christ, or that you've given to us freedom in Christ, and that we know we have access into your very presence. And uh, even as uh, Psalm I was looking at this morning, just talked about how you have dealt so bountifully with us, Father, each of us. If we had time, we could express exactly that sentiment, and so we thank you. Help us today as we work through the text of First Peter to dig deeply and, uh, and to, to move in a, in a pace where we can still understand the text. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in First Peter chapter 3. Uh, I am looking at verses 10 to 12. Is uh, Actually, I'm sorry. No, yeah. Right around there. So we're right at about verse 10. Let me see. Uh, We just talked about verse 8. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. If you remember, we talked about how that's done in a pattern, in a structured pattern, so that the center point of that is have familial love. He says in verse 8, then, he gives instructions for the church, but then in verse 9, he gives instructions towards those outside the church. And that includes... The following, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What is the natural response that you have when somebody gets upset with you? You get upset back. There's a a natural response. Uh, Somebody... Yeah, just the other day I'm driving, and I I can't even imagine what she was upset about at me. I, I don't know. I really still to this day. Not that I'm the best driver in the world, but I literally have no clue what had happened. But she's, I mean, she is so close to me that all I have to do is tap my brake, and she's going to hit me. I mean, she's like right on, she's honking her horn, she's uh, giving me the thumbs up, but not with her thumb, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, like my immediate is like, and it's like, all right, who cares? And then I just drove on and life went on. But, but the immediate like response is I'm going to, I'm going to get this person. Yeah, I'm going to get this person back. I'm going to teach her a lesson. Right. And uh, so that's natural for us. But here's what Peter says. Don't do the natural thing. And this is a part of his witness. Remember, a lot of this is going after what he suggested. Live your life in such a way that you live honorably among the Gentiles so that they look at you and they see your good deeds and glorify your Father. And one of those is by responding in a way that they don't expect. We don't return evil for evil. We don't return slanderous speech with slanderous speech. Instead, what do we do? Here's what he says. Instead, bless. Instead, repay with blessing. So, and you you see that language, repay, right? So, you know, uh, somebody gives to me something, and then I repay them with, generally, something of like kind or of like value. Uh, but, you know, if, if uh, you gave somebody a Snickers bar and they gave you $100, how would you feel about that? Yeah, <laughs> I'd find another one to give them, right? Because you recognize that what you were repaid is out of line with what you gave. And in the same way, I think that's what he's saying here, repay. It's ironic 
instead of giving exactly what they deserve, you give them far beyond better, right? You bless instead of repaying with cursing. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, this generally meant to speak well of someone. That's what bless meant, to say something kind about somebody. But in, in the Old Testament, the word actually referred to blessing as in praying for somebody. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. I think he's saying that when somebody speaks evil of you, here's what you do. You give a blessing to them. You offer a blessing for them. That is, they curse you and you say, oh, Father, would you convert that person's soul? Would you help them to see the light? Would you be gracious to that person? And again, that is not the, uh, the first thing we think of in reference to our enemies. But this is what Jesus called us to. If you look back at his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when people revile you, when people do bad against you, how should the believer respond? What do God's people do? We respond with blessing. Now, again, I don't think Peter nor Jesus is getting after the fact that, uh, you know, we don't call the police if somebody assaults us or something along those lines. If, if that boundary has been crossed, then we ought to do something about it. But if it's a personal offense, uh, you know, somebody just makes fun of me. I can remember I was at, it was in a, uh, in a public university setting, and, and, uh, and, and I think maybe I shared this a while back, but, but the public university professor essentially singled me out as a believer and essentially mocked my faith. And so how, how do I respond? Do I, you know, try and get even with this guy, or what am I going to do? Well, of course, you don't get even with your teacher. <laughs> that doesn't work out very well. <laughs> so, and so what do you do? You, you pray, and you say, God, this man has been rather unkind, and I pray... Uh, that you might change him uh, for his own good. And, you know, I mean, we've got to balance this because there are other times where the Scripture does call for us, I mean, or allow us, I think, sometimes, to pray prayers of justice. Lord, will you allow justice to be done? So I can't adjudicate in this context every time in which those prayers would be appropriate but here peter is saying here's what we ought to do we ought to bless that is speak graciously back to them and speak to god on their behalf pray to god for them and indeed jesus says in matthew 5 45 pray for those who persecute you and then peter makes this comment to this you were called so it's not clear what the referent of this is we have two options it could go backwards or it could go forward. Because if I say to this you were called, then it could have been the thing I was just talking about or it could be the thing I'm about to talk about. So notice here in verse 9, it could be don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. That is, to bless other people is one of the reasons you were called to salvation. That's possible. Or it could go forward. To this for, here's the reason why you should bless those who curse you. Because to this you were called, 
you were called to obtain a blessing. That is, God's called you to obtain a blessing, so bless other people. I think in, in, it most likely uh, points backwards. That one of the reasons that God has redeemed us is to pronounce blessing even on those who curse us. And he merely reminds us then that we are going to receive a blessing. Uh, so in other words, God will make all things right. This is one of the things that Peter is stressing throughout the whole text. That we can do the right thing because at the end of the day, God will make all things right. And we will receive a blessing when somebody curses us and reviles us and says all manner of evil against us falsely. And instead of responding in like kind, instead of responding with, with anger or malice, we respond with love and kindness. We say, well, but if I do that, then we never get even. Things are never squared away. You do, because at the end of the day, God says, I'm the one who does that. <laughs> I'm the one who will make all things right. And uh, to the degree that we attempt to do it on our own is the degree to which we actually rob ourselves of eternal uh, reward. I'm convinced of that. So here is what God has called us to then, that we might receive a blessing. And of course, this refers to eternal rewards. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage in verses 10 to 12. Here is the reflection of the blessing that we're to receive. But of course, for those who are on the outside, they will not receive such a blessing. So he gives this quotation, which is a poem from the Old Testament. Whoever desires to love life, whoever desires to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And why should they do all this? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we have a quotation of Psalm 34 here. This is actually the third or fourth time that Peter quotes from this psalm. Peter loves Psalm 34. Now, some think that um, that First Peter is is a sermon based upon Psalm 34. There may be some truth to that. Uh, read through Psalm 34 sometime on your own and see whether you find that persuasive. But he begins verse 10 with this calling back. He says, "For it's connecting uh, the passage here, this Old Testament passage, to what he's been arguing. Bless so that you would receive, or bless." For you're going to receive a blessing, and here's how we can do that, or here's the grounds for doing that, because whoever desires to love life and to see good days, here's what he should do in this life. Now the question might be, is the loving life and seeing good days, is that in reference to loving this life and seeing good days today? Or is that in reference to eternity? We will love life then, and we'll see good days then. Yeah. Yeah. I, you let that anger burn inside you. It takes hmm. the joy away from what you're living right now. I mean, it can eat sure. inside. There's no doubt about and that. It's definitely going to be great joy when we get to heaven. Mm-hmm. 
You can't deny that second part. Yeah. 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 And I would agree with that. So I, you know, in the Old Testament, the reference is clearly this life, clearly, because if you remember in the old under the old covenant, there were all kinds of promises to the Israelite people. If you obey my covenant, I will make the rain come at the right time and there will be bountiful harvests. And so we, you know, we we don't tend to appreciate the prosperity gospel preachers. Uh, and we say they're wrong. And that's true, they're wrong. They're just in the wrong dispensation. <laughs> in the Old Testament, they would have been right, actually. That to the degree that, one, that the community was faithful was the degree to which God blessed that community because in blessing them, he placed them in the center of the earth, the center of uh, the continents, and drew people to Israel to say, what God is blessing the people like this? Now, there are exceptions to that. Remember the story of Job, and there are some Proverbs that indicate that there are times where even the righteous God allows to enter into a period of stumbling. So there are exceptions to that. But on the whole, the, the old, old Covenant actually indicated that one would live that way. Peter then uses this text, and I think he's suggesting that our application of it today should not only be that I have hope that one day there's going to be glorious days to come, but that as well, to the degree that I am faithful to the Lord, I will love life today and I will have long days. Let me, let me tell you, I mean, disobeying God's commands, among God's people, if you were, a, if you were God's, God's saint, you become a believer, how do you feel when you disobey God's commands? Do you love life? <laughs> I don't. Um, when I know that I've disobeyed the Lord, it is, it's a, you know, the Holy Spirit is real. I mean, I know that I've done wrong and I don't enjoy that. But even beyond that, God's commands are such that if you obey them, life tends to go well with you. Not, not, not guaranteed, right? Because again, there are Job situations and God allows difficult situations in our life, irrespective of our obedience to him. But on the whole, those who obey God's commands find harmony in their relationships. They find peace in their home. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think of like my, my family. I mean, I'm not talking about my immediate family, but I'm saying my extended family. And you look at the, the ones who've sought after the Lord with faithfulness, and they don't have the broken families. They don't have... A lot of the issues that I see my other side of the family who uh, they don't know the Lord and lots of children out of wedlock and these sorts of things. And, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, I'm simply saying that those things cause challenges in life, right? Those are difficulties. Single parenthood, broken homes. I mean, these, these cause many tears, heartaches, trials, difficulties, and Again, that's not like that. those are the sorts of things that the Christian community is completely absolved from. But those are the sorts of things that we should expect less among Christian communities, right? Because we should be seeking the Lord. And so I, I, think, I think this does have reference to this life and the life to come. And so how do we do this? How do we, um, how do we 
love life and see good days. Well, he gives us some very specific application. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So the first two things refer to uh, what we say or what we do in terms of our lips. These three prohibitions, I think the first three are combined and then the next three are combined because to 11 said, or the, the third one is turn away from evil. Uh, these three elements commanded by Peter lived out by Christ. The first two were particularly important for Peter's audience because remember, they're being verbally slandered. And he's just said, don't respond in this way. And now he says, because remember, if you want to love life and see good days, you've got to keep your tongue. You've got to guard it. I mean, the words of James are true, are they not? The man who can keep his tongue is a perfect man. Um, and has no fault. Because if I'm going to fail, and of course part of the reason for that is because I'm a teacher, I'm talk- talking all the time. Um, but if I'm going to fail, it's usually in something I said. I said something that was maybe not kind or, um, you, you know, whatever else. It, it's, it's so hard to keep your tongue sometimes. And, and Peter's audience, especially in relation to people who are criticizing them, speaking evil against them, what, what's the natural thing? Let's get back at them. And Peter says, no, that's not how to love life and to see good days. So keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceit, and turn yourself from evil. And I think, again, this is pretty important for Peter, who in 2 11 to 12 uh, indicates that the believer is the type of person who walks away from the desires of the flesh, these evil things, and pursues honorable conduct among the Gentiles. He gives, so, so the first three are prohibitions. If you want to love life, see good days. Here's three things. Two of them have to do with watching your mouth, <laughs> and one of them has to do with uh, watching your actions. And then he turns and he says, and then here's three things you've got to do. A positive ascription of what should be done. And he says, first, which is the counterpart to the very previous one, do good. Do good. Second, seek peace. Seek peace. And the third is probably not to be understood as a separate command from the second one, but is an emphatic, so a a further emphasis on it, and that is pursue peace. So maybe there's a connection between these because you've got keep your tongue, keep your tongue, right? Avoid evil. Then he switches. Do good. Seek peace, pursue it. What is the primary way in which we can seek peace and pursue it among our relations? I think it probably has to do with what we say. You know, the, probably the hardest points in my marriage have been because of misunderstandings about something somebody said. And then we were impatient with each other rather than sitting down and just saying, okay, here's what I said. Here's what I meant by that. Um, there was some misunderstanding and then we just went off on it, right? And... Um, and I assume something, she assumes something, and then all of a sudden I'm on the couch or whatever, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, 
All right, I've never slept on the couch, all right, so I, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, you know, um, I think one of the things that destroys peace quickest is, is our tongue, and, and so I think that there's probably a connection between these two, and he says, seek peace and pursue it, so I think, you know, peace is something that we tend to think comes naturally, right? Well, peace is just the natural state of things. Actually, the natural state of things is chaos and destruction. That's, that's just our flesh. And the unnatural state of things is for people to seek peace, the humility it takes to, to approach that. And I think that's what he's getting at here. So Jesus indicated that his people would be peacemakers. Remember, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers uh, for they shall be called the sons of God do you see that they shall be called the sons of God because God's the one who brings peace he's the one who glues together fractured relationships and now you as a believer are coming along as God in God's place to restore relationships bring peace. And so we're peacemakers, is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5. The New Testament indicates the importance of this trait, and you can see the number of times it tells us to pursue peace. I mean, even, uh, you know, one of my favorites in the New Testament is um, pursue peace as far as you are able, right? Because we've all experienced something where We've done everything we can on our side to reconcile and to pursue peace, and the other side just isn't going to have it. And God says, that's enough. You've, you've pursued it as far as you can. Uh, but there are some times where peace is just not going to happen, and that has nothing to do with you anymore. Uh, you've done all that you can. All right. Um, so I think the doubling of that command, the idea of pursuing it, means that it's going to take diligent effort. Uh, that again, peace isn't the natural state, but it's something that must be sought after and God's people should be seeking it. And then he concludes this way, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. The picture is, is incredible, isn't it? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And you say, well, no, how is that possible? I mean, here I am, here you are. I mean, I guess he could see us. But there are lots of churches meeting right now. And how are the eyes of the Lord on all the righteous? Well, if, if we're getting to that point, then we've misunderstood who God is. <laughs> He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's able to view us all at the same time. In fact, God isn't even in time. And... Uh, you know, Augustine a long time ago, um, you know, he, he was talking about time and somebody was, was uh, trying to develop, you know, he, he was trying to develop what time is. And I think he's the one who famously said, if you ask me what time is, I, I know exactly, or if, if, if I'm thinking about time, I, I know exactly what it is until somebody asks me what it is. And then I have no clue what to say, because time is, time is this weird kind of a thing that we travel through. Um, and the comedic part of that was then somebody asked him, uh, you know, so what was God doing before, um, before he created the world? 
And his famous response was, uh, creating hell for people who ask that question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because it's a difficult question. What was God doing before he created the world? There wasn't a before he created the world. Well, there is once he created the world, but there wasn't a past then. There, there, was, a, there was a an ever-present, and I don't know how to describe that. But God isn't limited by time in the way that you and I are limited by time. And you say, well, I don't understand that. And that's fine. Uh, I think that's exactly who God should be. If we understood everything about God, he wouldn't be God. Right? A lot of people get bothered by the Trinity and they say, hey, wait a second now. I don't understand the Trinity, therefore I can't believe in God. And I say, if you actually understood the Trinity, then I wouldn't think that you should believe in God. That is, if you understood everything about God, then he's not God. He should actually be quite mysterious. He's a being that, that's outside this creation, and all we know is within this creation. So, in any case, here the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and we must believe this. He, he is viewing our lives. He cares about your life right now, and his ear is open to their prayer. He hears what we say to him, and he will respond. Maybe not always exactly the way that we desire. And we'll have prayers that sometimes we'll say, like the psalmist of the psalm I was reading this morning, Oh Lord, will you hear me? Will you listen to me? The point being, I would like, or I feel like I'm not being heard, but the scripture text says that the righteous are heard. He may not always answer in the way that we desire, but he hears. So then Peter then is making a direct correlation between those who do good and those who are righteous because he says do good because those who do good, the guys of the Lord are on the righteous. So the do-gooders are the righteous ones. And again, if you followed the letter so far, that's because when you become a believer, God changes you, transforms you by means of his Holy Spirit to make you a do-gooder so that then the good deeds that we produce are not to our own glory and fame, but are to the glory and fame of the God who's changed us. And this is why Peter can say, draw attention to your good deeds. Because when they see your good deeds, they see your father, not you. But then he ends it this way. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And why does he mention this here? Well, of course, he's quoting the Old Testament, but he, but he mentions this, I think, because, again, the readers are being told to bless those who curse them. And there's a certain extent to which they say, but justice isn't being done. And I think Peter's coming back and saying, justice is being done. The Lord hears your prayers. He does not hear theirs. He looks kindly upon you, looking upon you with eyes of grace and kindness, desiring to know of you. He does not look that way towards those who are outside the faith, those who do evil. And uh, in, in that the face of the Lord is against them, suggests that they have in fact received his attention and he's turned away from them. His face is against them. It is not favorably inclined, which suggests that it is, in fact, favorably inclined towards those who do good. That leads us to the next section, then. Verse 13. And he says this. In fact, 
let me uh, let me change over here to the NIV because that's what you guys are using. I forgot I was using the ESV up here, changing it over to the NIV. All right, so here's what he says in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, well, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason of the hope that's in you. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So here Peter indicates to us that the persecuted, those who are being slandered and spoken against, are the blessed. And you say, well, wait a second here. This seems rather upside down. This seems backwards. Have we heard this conception before? That the blessed are the persecuted? Anybody think of somewhere? What's that? It is how we have to look at it. And Jesus told us to do it. Matthew chapter 5. Yeah, at the end of the Beatitudes, he's mentioned six things, and then his final seventh Beatitude is, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Um, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is, what, this is what Matthew says, or Jesus says in the book of Matthew. And Peter here picks up that theme. He says, but even if you should suffer for doing what's right, you're blessed. And, uh, oh man. All right, so let's work through this then. He begins with this phrase here. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous or if you're eager to do what's right? And there's two ways of taking this. It could be that he's asking a rhetorical question. Who would actually harm somebody who wants to do right? And this is a logical question, right? What society seeks to punish the do-gooders, right? They isolate them and say, hey, look, these people over here, they're trying to do righteous. Let's, let's, uh, let's persecute them. And Peter says that would be irrational. By the way, we live in an irrational world, <laughs> All right. Uh, so maybe he's just using this in an ironic way. Now, it shouldn't ever be the case that people persecute people for doing right, even though that's exactly what's happening right now. That's possible. There's a second way of taking this. And the question would be perhaps put this way. Who can ultimately harm you if you're eager to do good? Because notice this. Who's, who is going to harm you? if you're eager to do good. And the question now no longer asks who would, but it's actually asking who can. And our immediate response might be, well, I mean, those people can. Uh, You know, because I think in Peter's context, they may even be being pulled in front of government officials being accused of wrongdoing to the government. And so... In one sense, Peter's audience says, well, I'll tell you who. (laughs) It's these people right here. They could harm me for seeking to do good. 
But I think Peter's getting deeper here. And Jesus makes a quotation in the Gospels, you may remember. He says, don't fear those who can harm your body, but fear him who can cast your body and soul into hell. So here's Jesus' point. He's saying, I'm afraid that there are some people who are so afraid of the world and the the culture around them and and the people around them that that they're doing themselves harm. Because at the end of the day, you can fear man or you can fear God. And if you fear man, then you might avoid a little bit of difficulty today. But if you fear God, you can avoid the eternal difficulty. And so who's going to ultimately harm you? I think that's probably what Peter's addressing here. And then he says, if you're zealous or if you're passionate for good deeds, this is his way of expressing the fact that believers, this is the very definition of believers, were those who are passionate for doing right. We want to do it. Uh, The Greek word here is zealot. Uh, We talk about zeal, passion, like I want to do right. And he says, this is the state of of the believer. This is what he should be. And then he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, for for righteousness. uh, And again, this goes back to Matthew 5. Uh, By the way, you are blessed does not refer uh, to happiness. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Sometimes people say this uh, foolishness when they, they talk about the Beatitudes. That really we should, you know, happy is the, you know, uh, poor in spirit. And, uh, the, the problem is you come to the second Beatitude, it's happy are those who mourn. Struggling to get that one. <laughs> I don't think it's about happiness. Though, I think it's a type of inward joy that can lead to happiness. It doesn't necessarily have to at all times. Believers, by the way, don't always have to be happy. Um, I mean, just just think about it. Look at the book of of Proverbs, or I'm sorry, uh, the book of Psalms. This is like the the Psalter of, of Israel. This is their songbook. I forget what it is. I think it's 40%. 40% of them are laments, are songs of sadness and of sorrow. That's actually the highest percentage of the types of psalms there are in, in the psalms. And you say, well, that's a little out of balance. Look at life. Is it really out of balance? This <laughs> life is full of sorrow, difficulty. And this is why I think, I'm getting off track here, but... I'm going ahead, all right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, th- this is why I think in our churches sometimes we, we get this mentality that the worship service should be uppity and should be this joyous occasion all the time. Um, I appreciate that sometimes our worship occasions, not all the time, it shouldn't be, you know, you walk in, it's like, is there a funeral happening, you know, every day in this church? Uh, that That might be a problem, but... But if it's always uppity, I think, I think you're, not, you're not expressing the full range of, of what Scripture speaks about. There are times where 
I am moved deeply because I'm going through a trial. And we sing a song about trial <laughs> and, and lament. And I've lost something. And we sing a song that talks about that loss and it just connects at that moment scriptural truth to my life experience. And I mean, just come in this Sunday, go to your church this Sunday and look around and think of what you know. All right? and, and this is far different than what's actually happening because all of us, you know, we tend to pop the roses out, right? And, uh, and we, we don't, you know, it's like the Facebook thing, um, you know, the chaos going on in life and clean it up, take the picture and then chaos, right? So you've got this picture, everything's fantastic. If you could scan the picture, right? It'd be like, whoa, what happened to that house, right? But, but everything's perfect in life, right? And that, that's how we tend to present ourselves in all aspects of life. But even if you, even, even if you, you know, even if people are doing that, you're still walk, looking around, you're still seeing the difficulties and trials. So lament is a good thing. And, and just because... God has given to us much reason to rejoice does not mean that we're always going to be happy every day. He's never told us, be happy. Um, He's told us to rejoice in what we're given. And that is a different thing. But here, he says, you're blessed. And I think the blessing is less about the emotional response I might have in relation to uh, the experience than the objective reality. I am blessed when I'm persecuted. So I can say, if I get persecuted for righteousness, I can say, I've, ju- I've just received a blessing. Not in the sense that that would, itself was the blessing, but that because of that, I'm guaranteed a blessing. So the blessing is from God's perspective, not always so much from the human side of things. So we must recognize from the perspective of reality, we are truly blessed. All right. Um, so verse uh, 14. Then. <clears throat> so you're blessed. And then so how do we respond? He says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So verse 14a highlights... I think Jesus is teaching on unjust suffering. Don't fear them, he says. Don't be frightened. These two things go together. It's not clear what Peter is addressing when he says, don't fear the fear of them. Here the NIV has, don't fear their threats. But literally it says, do not fear the fear of them. That could be one of two things. Do not fear the fear that they can produce. And that's what the NIV is going after here. Don't fear their threats. It could be, don't fear the fear of them. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be afraid of the things that the world's afraid of. You don't, you don't fear that way anymore because you don't, you don't inhabit the world they inhabit because you've been redeemed out of it. And I think that that's more likely. Now, why? Well, actually, he's quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting the book of Isaiah. And if you turn back to Isaiah, this quotation comes from the time period in which there's all kinds of rumors that the Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians have already taken over the northern kingdom. They've decimated it. And the Assyrians are not kind people. They're very bad people who do not treat their enemies well. 
And everybody's convinced that the Assyrians are coming down and they're going to destroy Israel or Judah, uh, the remaining the remaining tribes. And Isaiah is told by God, do not fear the fear of them. That is, do not fear the fear that they have. So don't be afraid of the Assyrians coming. Don't have their fears because you know something else. And I might put it this way, that what God teaches us here is that when we know him, we have nothing else to fear. When you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Uh, when you have the omnipotent one on your side, you say, as the scriptures do, what can man do unto me? (laughs) Right? Who has this power? And this goes back again to his statement. Who can ultimately harm you if you're zealous for what's good? Nobody can. So don't don't fear what they fear which includes, uh, you know, their threats, I think, uh, but is not limited to that. Now, the way he puts this suggests to me that he's actually telling us to do two things. Don't fear, um, he says, don't fear their threats or don't fear the fear of them. And then second, do not be frightened. I think the first thing is in reference to uh, the reality. Don't Don't fear, that is, don't act in fear. Don't live in that way. The second uh, seems to me to go more towards the emotional side of things. Don't become anxious. Which one do you find easier? Don't act in fear in regard to what they say and do and all that. Don't be anxious over it. Which one's harder? Oh, by far, isn't it? Because I, I, I could stand over here and I can quake in my boots all day long and do the right thing. Well, I'm not, don't take that as like some prideful thing, like, oh, I could do that. I'm just saying somebody could do that, right? <clears throat> Whereas controlling my inner emotions about how I think about this, that's hard. And sometimes I think we can give ourselves over to that. And that kind of qualms us a little bit because we can at least meditate on that. And I think that's ultimately destructive. And Jesus, uh, or Peter here says, don't do that. Don't do that. Of course, maybe the question you might ask next, the question I ask next is, all right, so how am I supposed to do that? Right? How am I going to quiet my heart in the face of what legitimately may cause me fear? And in Now, none of you will remember this, but I actually preached this passage at this church two years ago, something like that. But uh, you may remember it as I bring up this this illustration. But one of the things I think about sometimes is in relation to the world my daughters are going to grow up in. You know, because the world I grew up in is gone. Uh, It's crazy in, in my own lifetime. It's just it's a different world. And so, you, and I think about that, and I think, all right, well, you know, I, I can get anxious in my heart. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I should not fear. So how am I going to do this? Here's what he says. Verse 15, here's the alternative to fear and anxiety. The alternative is, but in your hearts, revere 
Christ as Lord. That word revere, we've run into it a couple of times already in 1 Peter. It means fear. Fear. But in your hearts, fear Christ as Lord. Now, we may take that in reverence, and I think that that is, that is right in this case, that it is a reverence we have for the Lord. You might translate it, but honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. The, the ultimate thing here is this. Don't fear them or what they fear. Fear God. It's a different type of fear, for sure. Uh, you know, as we look in the book of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means coming to know who he is and then acting appropriately on it. And so that's what Peter's calling us to. When we are tempted to meditate on that which frightens us, we instead meditate on the God who's capable of doing what we deem impossible. We reverence him. We fear him. We honor him above all else. Honor Christ the Lord in your hearts. Indeed, this word for honor here is related to the word for sanctification. It means to set him apart in our hearts. So think about Christ. Set him apart from everything else. And if we do that, I think this is the way of resolving the heart struggles that we might have. Um, meditate on Christ, knowing his love for you. Uh, as Paul says, the one who gave us his son, will he not with him give us all things? And Paul's point is that the person who's willing to give us something of incalculable worth, will he not care about us in the more insignificant matters? Yes. And so the person who, uh, you know, paid off your house and you forgot your lunch money, most likely they're going to be able to help you with the lunch money, right? <laughs> and in the same way, the one who sent his son to die for our sins, will he not at the same time care for us in all, every other aspect of life? So we fear, we honor, we set him apart as Lord. Just as a side note, in the Old Testament, it actually says, honor Yahweh as holy. And here it says, honor Christ as holy. I don't think Peter was mistaken here. I don't think he just kind of substituted the one for the other, I think he's suggesting to us that Christ is, in fact, Yahweh. He is the Lord, capital Lord. All right. And then he says this, while always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason of the hope that's in you. Now, uh, just a number of things from this passage here. First, he suggests that we can give a defense of the reason of the hope that's in us. I think what's significant about this is that Peter is indicating that we have reasons to believe what we believe. There have always, there's always been a uh, small contingent of people throughout ch church history that have suggested that um, 
the Christian faith is an irrational faith that, and, and they don't mean that in a negative way. They just say, you just have to believe it. Um, you know, it's not about the reasons of the mind. It's the reasons of the heart. And that sounds great, but that's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture says, if somebody comes and asks you a reason of the hope that's in you, you've got it. Tell them. By the way, he's not talking to elders here. He's not talking to the professionals within the church. He's talking to everybody. And he says, be prepared to give an answer, a defense of the reason of the hope that's in you. And by the way, I don't think this means that every believer should dedicate themselves to apologetics, to learn the whole field, to, know, to, to be able to marshal every argument for God's existence and again about the Bible and all these sorts of things. I really think that all Peter's saying here is, think about your faith. Think about what you've believed, why you've believed it. And when somebody comes and says, why do you believe? Tell them. Tell them. And you say, oh man, but then... What if they ask? What if they ask? Well, get to there when you get to there. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things I've found is that if people are legitimately, genuinely asking, and they say, why do you believe this? And you answer, and then they follow it up with a question you don't know the answer to, they are happy to hear you say, that's a really good question. I've not thought through that like I'd like to. Can I think about that? Maybe talk to some of my friends and get back to you on that? If they're legitimate, what are they going to say? Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to do that. And then you can go back and you can think about that and, and come back. So remember, the, Peter's not telling everybody to go out and, and to talk to people. That's actually now a lot of people talk about this as the apologetic mandate. You've got to go out. But, but look at what he says here. Be ready so that when people ask you a reason of the hope that's in you, so how did they get to this point? Well, just think of what Peter's been developing in the letter. He said, here's what you should do. Act honorably among unbelievers so that when they see you, your, your good works, they're actually attracted to the God who's made you new. Then they're going to come up to you and say, why are you different? What's the deal? Can you explain to me why you're so weird? All right. Maybe they won't use those words, but that's what they're thinking in their mind. Yeah, why are you different? And now, now you can just in a casual conversation, because what instigated this? It wasn't you knocking on a door, you know, somebody's trying to cook dinner and here you are. I mean, that, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It, it can be good. But they've come to you because they've already seen something. Yeah, that's a different conversation. And that's the type of conversation that's golden. And this is the sort of thing that Peter is suggesting that believers should be having. Because he says, give a reason of the hope that's in them. Hope here stands for the entirety of the Christian worldview. Why is it that we hope that we have a hope for the things that are to come? And I think he said, because Peter doesn't say here... Um, Give a reason for the faith that is in you. He, though he could have. He says, give a reason for the hope that's in you. Because that's why they're asking the question. Because they see in you a hope that they don't have. And they say, well, what is this hope? 
How can you, in the midst of this fearful situation, not be afraid? How come when we make fun of you, you never get angry and snap back at us, and you nevertheless treat us kindly later? (laughs) Thankfully, that's not in this passage, so I don't have to deal with that one today. But but in, in all honesty... Our demeanor should provoke questions. And that's what, that's what he's saying. So um, we already talked about it to anyone asking you. But then he says this. But answer with meekness and reverence, maintaining a good conscience. What does he mean by this? Well, he says meekness that it often defined as strength under control. I like that. And I think... Perhaps this is to the, those who, are, you know, who really enjoy argumentation. They really enjoy getting the nitty-gritty of these sorts of things. And uh, they're ready to just you know, pounce and give the argument and make the other person look silly. And let me just say, in, in witnessing for your faith, if you make the other person look silly, you lost. Now, you can make their argument look silly without making them feel silly. And, you know, one easy way of just doing that is just saying, boy, okay, yeah, I, I've heard that before. I'm just struggling to understand how do you, how, how does that work? So what you're doing there, instead of saying, you know that those two things don't go together, right? Like, that just doesn't work. <laughs> instead of saying that, just say, hey, how, how do you, you know, I don't understand how, that rec- how you reconcile those two things. And, and then what they're doing at that point then, you first of all, given them the benefit of the doubt that they have a reason. They most likely don't. They've probably not thought through their worldview at all. Most people don't. So then they're not on the defensive immediately, but instead they're, they're trying to engage in conversation. Okay, well, well, here's why. And then as they're expressing it, they're coming to understand, actually, I, this doesn't make any sense at all. And you'll get this. If you spend any time in, in talking to unbelievers, I mean, they, because there are a lot of things in this world, we've got these empty platitudes that make a lot of sense until you actually think about them. And then you question somebody on them, and they can't defend them. And then they realize in the middle of the conversation, boy, yeah, maybe that doesn't make much sense. But the way they came to it was self-realization rather than you directing to them and proclaiming to everybody uh, how foolish how foolish they were to believe something, right? So this is Peter's point. With meekness, respond. Second, with reverence. I think that some translations here take this as fear, but I think it's in reference to the unbeliever rather than to God. And I think it's just simply saying, treat them with respect. And again, Peter is talking about people who have probably been maliciously speaking against you. And to some degree, you may want to say, well, why should I respond kindly to this person? But no, he says, respond kindly. Respond, respond with respect because the person you're speaking to is created in the image of God. They are a being that will live for eternity somewhere. Respond to them with respect. And then he says a third thing. Respond in such a way that you maintain a good conscience. Can you walk away from that encounter? after you have expressed yourself, they've expressed themselves, can you walk away with a smile on your face? 
saying, I represented my Lord well? Or do you walk away saying, oh man, I probably shouldn't have said that that way. I shouldn't have yelled. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a problem. Um, you know, one apologist often says, if you get angry, or if, if you get angry, you lose. If they get angry, you lose. <laughs> and I think that's probably true. Somehow you got to keep the temperature down in those kind of sorts of conversations. Maintain a good conscience. Because part of the reason they came to you is because they saw your good conscience. So maintain it. And then he says, here's the reason why we ought to do all this. Why should we respond to their questions about our hope? Why should we do so in a gracious and compassionate way? He says, so that. When you are slandered, when you're spoken against maliciously, uh, in fact, notice what is spoken against, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So here's what he says, so that when you're slandered, the ones mistreating you may be put to shame. What does this shame mean? It could be um, a temporal shame that even though they said evil things against you, you respond in a kind way and they're just, boy, I shouldn't have treated him like that because this guy really is a good guy. It could be. But I think Peter's got a deeper message here. I think he's talking about that they may be brought to shame, that the shame of repentance so that they would inv- indeed be converted. And why would they be converted? He says, because of your, or I'm sorry, why would they slander you? This is, this is the shocking portion of the letter. They're slandering you because of your good conduct or your good behavior in Christ. And again, we tend to think that if we do good, that people are going to respond well. But Peter here says, in fact, they speak evil of you because of your good conduct in Christ. And of course, This makes a lot of sense to us today. It is because of our righteous stands that Christians, evangelicals today, are mocked mercilessly. Can you believe those people? They they won't accept and then add in whatever the new cultural norm is. Um, But we can't accept those things because that's not how God made us. So... Sometimes we're mocked for our good conduct in Christ. That is because of Christ. And then the final section here, he says this. It is better to suffer for good than for evil. Now, uh, in one sense, that sounds like just a simple platitude. It's better to suffer for good than for evil. Uh, But I think it has enormous depth for those enduring suffering. And the question is this, should I suffer now for righteousness and be rewarded? Or switch sides, do evil, avoid present suffering, and endure eternal suffering. I think that's actually what Peter's saying here. It's better to suffer for doing good today than to suffer tomorrow and every day thereafter for doing evil. So you have a choice. Do you want to be with God's people and endure suffering today? That's better. Or do you want to be with those not of God's people and endure suffering? It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then he adds this little comment in the middle, if it be the will of God. And this is a reminder for us. This is, I think, the second or third time that Peter references 
God's will in relation to our suffering. And his point is that if you suffer, and if you suffer for righteousness, that is God's will for you. That's hard for us to hear because we we tend to want, you know, only good things. (laughs) Uh, But God does indeed tell us that that is good. It leads to blessing. And he says here, if it be the will of God. So sometimes God's will is that his people suffer for their own good and for the good of others. Because notice, why did people come and ask the question of these saints? What's your hope? It's because of the way they responded to their suffering. So sometimes the suffering that God allows in our lives is for our own good. And sometimes the suffering God allows in our lives is in reference to those who actually bring our suffering. That is, our suffering can also be vicarious in a different way than Jesus's was. He bore their sins. We, by bearing suffering, uh, might also lead to their redemption in a different way than Christ, but in an analogous way. All right, well, that's where we leave off today. At least I got through this one. So, man, move it along. Move it along. All right, uh, so we'll just do what we can, and next time we'll be going through 318 to 22, all right? Thank you so much for your attention tonight.